Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. For this morning, though, I want us to turn our hearts and attention back to Isaiah. But again, we're going to clear some more theological ground again this Sunday. And I'm actually going to go back and hopefully clarify some of the things that I taught last week. I got a number of questions and emails. Uh, they were good questions and, uh, and good emails, just questions, um, helping uh, people with, you know, how can I understand these things a little bit better? So my goal this morning is to uh, both clarify and, and make sure that we understand what we talked about last Sunday, this question of where is the kingdom of God, but also um, we can answer and ask and answer the question, uh, who are the people of God? And that's, that's really the bulk of what we want to consider, which will set the stage then for 24 to 27. The one true and living God is presented in Isaiah 24 to 27 as the sovereign Lord of history, and that means that he and he alone is moving all things to his appointed end, his appointed goal, which is the establishment of his eternal kingdom. Chapters 24 to 27 describe a future worldwide judgment that gives way in 25 to 27 to a worldwide kingdom. And at this climactic moment in human history, Yahweh's uniqueness and his superiority above all earthly and heavenly powers will be absolutely unmistakable. That's the scene that we see here. There is no other God in the picture. The Lord will purge the earth, uh, judge the wicked, banish death forever, and he will receive the remnant's praises. And so in many ways, chapters 24 to 27 are, I think, a fitting conclusion to um, the messages to the nations that we've read about and studied through in 13 to 23. At the end of the age, all that remains is God, his kingdom, and his holy people. Whatever else you've put your trust in, that is all, according to Isaiah, going to be swept away. But again, that prompts a number of important questions. Uh, that I think, uh, if we're honest, are fuzzy in our minds and misunderstood. Questions like, where is the kingdom of God? And so we tried to ask and answer last week, and who are the people of that kingdom? You might be tempted to think that the answers to these questions, and especially after last week's message, you might be tempted to think that the answers to these questions aren't that important. Um, that these are the kinds of questions that uh, egghead theologians in their ivory towers kind of volley back and forth to one another in their PhD theses. But that's, uh, that is a mistake, I think, to think about it that way. Nothing really could be further from the truth because the kingdom of God, in a very real sense, unifies and clarifies the totality of Scripture. God's kingdom program, which begins with creation and culminates with the new creation, that goes for stretches from Genesis to Revelation. You can wrap your arms around the entire arc of the, the Bible uh, in, in five kind of component parts. And again, this is just review from what we looked at last Sunday. Creation, fall, promise, redemption, and ultimately restoration. God's kingdom program unfolds in those kind of chapters. And there are many things happening in each of those chapters. The kingdom created becomes, in Genesis 3, the kingdom fallen. And then the rest of the scripture leads to the kingdom restored. So I would argue that to truly understand and make sense of the Bible, you have to have well, first you have to have the Holy Spirit, but if you want to, once you, assuming that you have the Holy Spirit, you've got to have an understanding, at least a, a preliminary understanding of the kingdom of God. 
every portion of the scriptures is like, like pieces in a larger picture contribute its own unique part to God's revelation of his kingdom plan that stretches, we said, from creation to new creation. So to give up on understanding this theme, the kingdom of God, as it's revealed in scripture, is in a sense to wave the white flag on understanding the scriptures themselves. If you don't understand the grand theme of scripture, then you'll never truly know the God who's revealed himself on its pages, except in the most trivial and superficial ways. Beyond that, to misunderstand the kingdom of God as, as God has intended us to understand it from his word is to open yourself up to misunderstanding, uh, misinterpreting, misapplying, and thus misrepresenting God and the gospel of the kingdom to a perishing world. We see this, for example, in the prosperity theology of the word and faith movement. Because they believe the kingdom has come to earth, they are, that they are ruling and reigning with Christ now, they wrongly teach that, um, that Christians can and should enjoy all the physical and material blessings of the future millennial kingdom now. All you need is enough faith to name and claim things like physical healing, long life, financial security, relational harmony, and whatever else your heart desires. That if you just believe it sincerely enough and speak it, it will come to be. That is, a, that is rooted in a wrong understanding of the kingdom of God. We see it, in the, for example, also in the Christian Reconstruction and Theonomous movements. Uh, because they, too, also have an over-realized view of the kingdom, there's a false assumption that Christianity's influence is just going to grow and grow and grow. And eventually, once uh, the world has um, basically become Christian, Christ returns. And, and, and pretty soon, before you know it, everyone's going to be living in submission to God and his word. And one of the implications of that kind of teaching is that Christians instinctively reach for, grab hold of, and maintain the levers of earthly power in order to Christianize the land. And so, and so some of the more extreme elements, this isn't necessarily a broad view, but there are some of the more extreme elements that believe that Old Testament laws that were given specifically to Israel under the Mosaic Covenant, that those ought to become the laws of every nation, including the penalties. So again, where do both of these distortions of God and the gospel come from? Well, they, they rise out of some misunderstanding of this concept of the kingdom of God. So we can't, I, we just cannot bury our heads in the sand and be content to walk around with this vague notion of the kingdom of God because wrong doctrine always leads to wrong living. It always flows downstream. Uh, wrong doctrine always flows downstream to wrong living. I think there's a compelling argument that's been made, and I have not made this argument. These are men much smarter and wiser than me. They have made the argument that the kingdom of God is the entry point to unifying and clarifying the Bible. And therefore, you know, the kingdom of God becomes the entry point to unifying and clarifying the, a massive book like Isaiah, which covers the, you know, the scope of human history. Now, last week, we asked and answered this question, where is God's kingdom? Where is God's kingdom? Because according to Isaiah, God's kingdom isn't comprised of a bunch of bodiless spirits floating around in the ether. We said that God's kingdom is placed. It occupies a, a time and space with embodied people dwelling in it. This is essential to our true humanity. 
Um, and we looked at Genesis 1 and 2 to begin, where God roughs in this twofold framework of the kingdom. In Genesis 1, Moses describes God, God's creation of and universal rule over the, the entire world. Man is given the responsibility to fill the earth and subdue it, but he looks at it from a holistic standpoint. All of earth is in view in Genesis 1. But then in Genesis 2, Moses records how God's rule had a focal point or a hub in, the describing, uh, in his describing the creation of a particular realm, the Garden of Eden. And, and from that hub, the man and the woman were to carry out this divine mandate to fill the earth and rule and subdue it. This two-fold framework, then, we said, is foundational to answering the question, where is the kingdom of God? There is a universal scope to God's kingdom. God's reign is over heaven and earth. We understand that. It extends over every created thing. And yet, at the same time, there's a particular focal point to God's kingdom program as it unfolds throughout human history and is recorded for us across the pages of Scripture. In creation, that focal point is the garden. In the, uh, under the Mosaic Covenant, under the, uh, in the Old Testament, it's the tabernacle, and later the land of Israel, and specifically Jerusalem, becomes a center point. On this side of the cross, God's kingdom program is advancing through the body of Christ, the church. And at the end of the age, God's kingdom program will zero in upon Jerusalem and the land of Israel once again. God's kingdom is universal in scope, but the worldwide scope of God's future kingdom will have a focal point in Zion in the future millennial kingdom of Messiah on earth, as well as in the new heavens and the new earth. So the question becomes, how do I know what the author's talking about? How do I know what they're, oh, which view of the kingdom they are re- referencing? And so as you, as you encounter this theme, this kingdom of God theme in Scripture, the question you need to ask yourself is, is really One of two questions. Is the author talking about the extent of God's rule here in this passage, which has has been and always will be over every molecule of the universe? Or is the author describing the particular expression of God's rule at a specific point in redemptive history? The answer to that question will help you understand what vantage point of the kingdom the author is speaking about. Is it talking about the extent of God's rule, or is it talking about a particular expression of God's rule at a unique point in redemptive history? So, for example, when Isaiah writes, as he does in 66, verse 1, that heaven is God's throne and the earth is his footstool, that's kingdom, that's kingdom language, right? He's clearly talking about the extent of God's kingdom, its its reach. He's looking at it from the vantage point of God's universal kingdom, the realm over which God exercises his dominion. That's meant, that's what's pictured by this footstool imagery, is the whole earth. So, So clearly it's talking about the extent of God's kingdom. But if you back up into chapter 65 and read verses 17 to 24, He speaks of God creating a new heaven and a new earth. And in Jerusalem, that there will no longer be any weeping or or that one who dies at 100 will will, um, be considered a youth, that the wolf will lie down with the lamb and so forth. He's clearly describing an expression of God's rule in the future. This is not the present reality of things. He's describing it from the narrower vantage point of this coming millennial kingdom when sin's impact on the created order is severely diminished 
with Satan bound and awaiting final judgment. So, so we need to be able to ask and answer those questions. Most of the references to the kingdom of God in the prophets and in the book of Acts and the gospels and even in the New Testament letters, most of the references are looking at the kingdom of God or speaking about it, describing it from the narrower vantage point of the future kingdom restoration. Most of them, not all of them, but many of them. And in this final chapter of God's kingdom plan, this restoration part that we referenced earlier, um, there include, that includes both an intermediate millennial reign of Christ and the eternal kingdom that is described in Revelation 21 and 22. So when I say God's kingdom program and its restoration, we're, we're, that encompasses both of those realities, a future millennial reign of Christ upon the earth, as well as a new heaven and a new earth. Both are in view. So Christ's kingdom program culminates in the future, having a specific beginning point at the end of the tribulation. It will be centered in a specific location, Jerusalem, at least as a focal point, and it will extend across the globe over a righteous remnant that includes both Israel and the nations. That's what we tried to understand last week. But you can't discuss the where of God's kingdom without considering the who of God's kingdom. And so the question we want to ask and answer in our time this morning is, who are the people of God? In other words, as we look at the book of Isaiah, as we study it, as we read through it, and and elsewhere, what do the people of God's kingdom look like? And four, I'm going to submit to you four characteristics stand out. First, um, God's kingdom people are a purified and redeemed people. God's people are a purified and redeemed people. You may remember in the opening verses back in chapter 1 of Isaiah, God makes clear to Israel and Judah that they are not the kingdom of priests and holy people that he had created them to be. Do you remember that? In this kind of courtroom language, in verse 4, he calls them a sinful nation, a people weighed down with iniquity. He calls them offspring of evildoers, sons who act corrupt, spiritually sick from head to toe. Later on in chapter 1 and in verse 10, he calls them, he says they're like Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse 21, he says they're like harlots. And in verse 24, he speaks of them as, God, as they are his enemies. So, so the picture is not a pretty one of Israel and Judah. And if we're honest, that's every one of us in our natural condition. It's, 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 it's Romans 3 verse 10. There is none righteous, not even one. But ironically, as you read through Isaiah, even chapter 1, the focus isn't on what sinful man will do for God, but what God will do for sinful man. To create a kingdom people for himself. Look at verse 25 of chapter 1. As he's kind of laid out all these things, he, he says in verse 25, I will also turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with lye and will remove all your alloy. And then I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. After that, you will be called the city of righteousness, a faithful city. God is on a mission to create a purified people and a redeemed people for himself. And how is he going to do that? God's going to accomplish that through a clarifying, a series of clarifying judgments that culminate in a final salvation. In the near term, 
He's going to bring Assyria and later Babylon to drive Israel and Judah into exile. But even after that exile and that return to the land, the people will still have a stubborn and unrepentant heart. In fact, Isaiah even anticipates their stubbornness of heart. Later on in chapter 42, in verse 25, he speaks about it as if it's already happened. He says, speaking of God, He, God, poured out on him, Israel, the heat of his anger and the fierceness of battle. And it set him, Israel, aflame all around, and yet he did not recognize it. And it burned him, but he paid no attention. In other words, God is going to judge them, and it's not going to make a big difference. It's not going to change their their focus, their selfishness, their rebellion. God's discipline will bring the rebellious people down, but it will not cause them to look up to him in faith. And so God's mission then takes a radical and unexpected turn. Isaiah tells us that, and this is in Isaiah, that Yahweh will purify a people for himself through the priestly work of the Lord's servant and his final judgment at the end of the age. And so as you get into chapters 52 and following, this suffering servant, verse 15 of chapter 52, is described as sprinkling many nations, speaking of ritual purification. His life, Isaiah 53, will become a guilt offering to God. And as a result, this servant, this Lord's servant, will have offspring. He'll have children. And later on in chapter 56, in verses 6 and 7, it says that these offspring, God's servants, with a little s here, are the ones whose inheritance will be God's holy mountain. As you get into 56 to 66 in Isaiah, Isaiah describes an even greater judgment, a final judgment that isn't remedial, but is punitive and final. And when God's apocalyptic judgment breaks loose at the end of the age, it is going to sweep all the wicked who remain aside and to save the repentant. In Isaiah 59 and verses 18 and 19, God's repaying men according to their deeds. He is dealing out wrath to his adversaries. He is recompensing his enemies. God's judgment, he describes it here as coming like a rushing stream driven by the Lord's wind. And when it's all over, when it's final, when all the dust settles, Isaiah 62 verse 12 tells us that God's people will be called holy and a redeemed people. Look at verse chapter 62 and verse 11. He says, Behold, the earth has proclaimed to the end of the earth. Say to the daughter of Zion, Lo, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. And they will call them, this remnant, the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you will be called sought out, a city not forsaken. So God's mission will create, by the work of the servant, a holy people sprinkled clean by his blood, redeemed from their slavery to sin. So it goes without saying that God's people are a purified and a redeemed people. As we think about this category, people of God, they are a purified and redeemed people, not because of what they have done, but because of what the servant has done in their place what God has done to bring them to himself. So, so the first characteristic of God's people is that they are a, a purified and redeemed people. Secondly, God's people are an obedient and just people. They are an obedient and just people. The emphasis on 
God's work to purify and redeem a people for himself, that doesn't mitigate uh, man's responsibility, (laughs) man's part to play in this. We need to hear God's word. We need to obey God's word. The, the ultimate litmus test in terms of one's conduct for being accounted among God's people is whether that person responds obediently to the word of God. Um, if you go back to chapter 1 in Isaiah and verse 19, Isaiah makes clear to, to Judah, if you will consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land. But, he says, if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. And uh, you may remember when we taught through chapter one through f- chapters 1 through 5 that this is a play on words here. He says, eat the good things by walking obedience to God. The alternative is to be eaten up by God's judgment. That's literally what it says, to be devoured by God's judgment. If you look down at verse 27... He says, Zion will will be redeemed with justice and her repentant ones with righteousness. He says, but transgressors and sinners will be crushed together and those who forsake the Lord will come to an end. God purposed to purify and redeem a people for himself. We saw that back in verse 26. The only question then for the reader and the hearers is this, will you be among those who repent and obey and enjoy the kingdom blessings that are coming? Or will you be among those who transgress and forsake the Lord and are ultimately swept away? The end of Isaiah communicates a very similar message. The dividing line between the two groups, those who are part of the people of God and those who are not, is clear. If you look at chapter 65 and verse 11, it says, But you who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who set a table for fortune and who fill cups with mixed wine for destiny, he says this, I will destine you for the sword, and all of you will bow down to the slaughter. And you say, well, why? Why is God going to judge them? Why is he going to destroy them? The end of verse 12 says, Because I called, but you did not answer. I spoke, but you did not hear. And you did evil in my sight and chose that in which I did not delight. And so, again, this description is clear in verse 65. But if you go down just a few verses into chapter 66 and verse 2, it is the humble and the contrite of spirit who tremble at God's word. Those are the ones whom God will look upon with divine favor. So the beginning of the book and the end of the message of Isaiah is, is loud and clear. Kingdom people should obey the voice of their king as they wait for his coming judgment and salvation. They are an obedient and just people. And that obedience is active. It's an active obedience. It's not just believing things in your head. It, it gives way to, to um, actual good deeds, good works. God's people, chapter 1, verse 16, should cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. I mean, this is what wasn't happening in Israel. It's not enough to say, well, I'm not doing evil. Isaiah points out here, God's people must share with those in need, advocate for the vulnerable and the oppressed, to give up what may be rightfully theirs for the freedom and the blessing of others. This is how the Lord deals with us. 
We certainly don't deserve anything, and yet he has dealt with us righteously, and he has dealt with us generously. So God's people are to be an obedient and a just people. Thirdly, God's people are to be a trusting people, a trusting people. And by that, I mean they should trust in and believe upon God with their whole heart, mind, and spirit. We, we are a trusting people. If you go through Isaiah, I think it's uh, 10, there's 10, at least 10 references in Isaiah uh, to this command, do not fear, do not be afraid. Isaiah 41, verse 10, do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Verse 13, he says, for I am the Lord your God who upholds your right hand, who says to you, do not fear, I will help you. Do not fear, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. I will help you, declares the Lord. And your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Even though God's people will experience chastening, and, and as he's writing this, they are staring down a massive uh, judgment in, exi- in exile, he assures them that God will be with them and God will uphold them. In spite of that, they do not need to be fearful. They do not need to be anxious. We saw this back in chapters 13 to 23. We shouldn't put our trust in earthly power. We shouldn't put our trust in earthly politics or earthly possessions. They're a false hope. Rather, the cry of God's people echoes the words of Isaiah 12 in verse 2 where they say, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song and has become my salvation. Like this is the cry of a trusting people. You say, well, what if things are dark? What if things are really bad? What if it looks like there is no light? What, what then when everything is bleak and beyond all hope? Well, Isaiah 50 verse 10, he says, Who is among you that fears the Lord, that obeys the voice of his servant? that walks in darkness and has no light, is as dark as it can be. He says, what what, what instruction does Isaiah have for that person? He says, let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. We saw this with Ahaz, faithless Ahaz, right? Syria and the northern tribes of Israel are bearing down on him. And Isaiah says to him, if you will not believe that God will deliver, you surely will not be established. And we remember we said that, that uh, you could paraphrase that, that um, statement by Isaiah as trust or bust. <laughs> trust God and you'll be established. Fail to trust him and you will be torn down. And so the fact of the matter is that if the Holy One of Israel is, in fact, as we have seen him to be, the sovereign over all the kingdoms of the earth, well, then his kingdom people can trust him and they should trust him with all the circumstances of life. So God's people are a purified and redeemed people. They're an obedient and just people. They're a trusting people. And fourthly, God's people are a Jewish and Gentile people. God's people are a Jewish and Gentile people. God's kingdom program has always, from the very beginning, involved more than just Israel. 
All the way back in Genesis chapter 12, God's covenant with Abraham promised that Abraham, that through him, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And that is certainly the case as we read and study through Isaiah. I want us to go back to some sections that we've already studied. Look at chapter 19 for just a second, Isaiah chapter 19. Remember, verses 1 to 15 describe, uh, he's describing God's judgment against Egypt for its sin and its godless rebellion. But alongside that, that description of judgment in verses 1 to 15 in Isaiah 19, he portrays the Lord's salvation poured out on this Gentile people. And that ends up being really a, a microcosm, a representative of the salvation blessings that will extend to all the peoples of the earth. The future day of the Lord won't just see a judgment against Egypt's sin, but through that judgment, bring about salvation to the nations. And we saw in verses 20 and 21 that there is this, um, uh, suddenly the fear of the Lord is, is front and center and, and prayer and uh, a recognition of God's revelation. And there's genuine worship that's taking place in Egypt. Egypt and the nations will worship God in the future in spirit and in truth with faithful obedience. And verses 23 to 25 show us that the result of that transformation, those kingdom blessings, will bring, bring peace. In that day, this is always referring to some future day, and it's, it's intentionally nonspecific. There will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and the Assyrians will come into Egypt, and the Egyptians into Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be the third party with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed is Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance." So the scene here is of believing Jews and Gentiles, one new humanity, united under the banner of Messiah, who is all in all. Every tribe and tongue and people and nation worshiping the Lord together and accepting one another because they have been accepted by the Lord, by his purifying and redeeming work. Egypt and Assyria are said to be a blessing, in verse 24, in the midst of the nations, in the midst of the whole earth, which shows uh, that the whole earth is the realm of God's kingdom at this time when this is happening. Titles that were once used only for Israel are expanded here to include the Gentiles. He says, Egypt is my people, and Assyria is the work of my hands. Those were designations that were once used only for Israel. But here they are applied to the Gentiles. So what does that mean? Well, it means that the people of God, that category, the people of God, expands to include the Gentiles. And that's exactly how we see Peter using it in 1 Peter chapter 2. There are at least two, I think, theological implications from this. First, nations will be a part of the kingdom of God in the future. Nations... Distinct nations will be a part of the kingdom of God in the future. What's described here is more than just the gospel spreading to individual souls in the world like we see in the present age. 
Uh, Isaiah prophesies of a time in the future when nations as national entities are serving the Lord, and Egypt and Assyria and Israel are among them. Other nations we see from other portions of Scripture, other portions of the prophets, are a part of this kingdom, uh, God's kingdom rule, international rule as well. So nations are a part of that. A secondly, kind of a second theological implication, is that the people of God, the concept of the people of God expands to include Gentiles alongside Israel, who also exist as the people of God. And some good and godly people understand these passages to speak, when they speak of the Gentiles being blessed along with Israel, they take that to mean that the, the Israel, be, uh, that the Gentiles become Israel. And, but that is not the case. What Isaiah makes clear is that these nations become the people of God alongside Israel. Israel... Israel doesn't expand to include the Gentiles. Rather, the people of God expand to include Gentiles alongside Israel. And so to be counted among God's people doesn't mean the obliteration of ethnicity or national affiliation. It doesn't mean that the Gentiles morph into Israel. Jew and Gentile participate together in the people of God. That's why Paul says, as he does in Ephesians 3, verse 6, that believing Gentiles in the church are fellow heirs, fellow members of the body, and fellow partakers of the promise. This is consistent. I mean, it's clear that they are with Israel, not Israel. This is the consistent picture we see throughout Isaiah and elsewhere in the prophets. Look at Isaiah chapter 2 and verse 2. This is descriptive of um, God's kingdom, most likely his millennial reign. And in verse 2 of chapter 2, he says, Now it will come about that in the last days the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills, and what? All the nations will stream to it. So the picture is clearly nations exist, and in Israel exists as the focal point of God's kingdom reign. If we go to our text that we have never come to in the last two weeks, Isaiah 25 and verse 6, it says, this is speaking of um, the banquet of the Lord that he is putting on for his people. The Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain, a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow, and refined aged wine. On this mountain, he will swallow up the covering, which is over all peoples. So again, we see that all, not just Jews, but all the nations are in view. And then again, as you come to the end of the book in chapter 66, in verses 18 to 20, he says, the time is coming, verse 18, 66 verse 18, the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues and they shall come and see my glory. I will set a sign among them and will send survivors from them to the nations, Tarshish, Put, Lud, Meshech, Tubal, and Javan, to the distant coastlands that have neither heard my fame nor seen my glory. And they, these nations, will declare my glory, and they, excuse me, his people will declare my glory among the nations. And notice this, then they shall bring all your brethren from all the nations as a grain offering similar to a grain offering is brought to the Lord. So, 
Again, the concept of the of Israel does not expand, uh, doesn't expand, but the concept of the people of God does expand. And so, the kingdom of God includes Gentiles as well as the people of Israel who believe. So, sum it all up: Who are God's people? Who are God's people? First. They're a purified and redeemed people. They are a purified and redeemed people. We are both Jew and Gentile, a faithless, sinful lot. And yet, God will purify and purchase a people for himself, saving them out of their sin. And this is consistent with God's work in the person of Jesus Christ. Christ fulfills this mission. He says in Luke 5, verse 32, I have come not to call the righteous, what? But sinners to repentance. Romans 5, verse 6 says, While we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. He demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us to redeem us. And so it is only through Christ's work on the cross and his resurrection that God, by his spirit, creates a holy nation who can participate in this future salvation. God's people who have been purified and redeemed give evidence to that transformation in their hearts, secondly, by being an obedient and just people. That's how we know that something has taken place. As Jesus said in the parable of the soils, the people of God in Christ are the good soil that hold God's word in an honest and good heart and hold fast and bear fruit with perseverance. They are obedient. And fruitful. God's people are those who hear Matthew 7, verse 24, Christ's words, and act on them. And thus are like the wise man who builds his house on the rock. So God's people are an obedient and just people. God's people are a trusting people. Just as Israel and Judah were to trust God instead of foreign nations to save them, so believers are to trust that they are and will be saved from the day of wrath. We, we, we believe that. We, we have put our, our, we've staked our souls upon it. We trust that God, the sovereign Lord of history, will conquer sin and death. He will make right all that is wrong when he comes to establish his kingdom program on earth. And lastly, God's people are a Jewish and Gentile people. God's kingdom people will hail from Every nation, as the nations are swept up in the glorious wake of God's salvation and restoration of Israel and Zion. And we said last week, what he does in Jerusalem is descriptive. It is, it is representative of what he will do throughout the entire earth. It is then through the life, death, and resurrection of the Jewish Messiah, Jesus, that the good news of the kingdom is going out from Jerusalem, it has gone out from Jerusalem to Judea and to even to the uttermost parts of the earth. And God's kingdom program continues in the present age in his church. The church is not the kingdom. It is an expression of God's kingdom program, but the church is not the kingdom of God. And we need to understand that. God's kingdom program is working itself out through the church because the Jews have rejected their Messiah. But Paul reminds us in Romans 11, if the Jews' transgression is riches for the world their failure, and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, he asks this rhetorical question, how much more will their fulfillment be? Clearly, Paul had a, a vision for the future of Israel as a nation. 
There's a future day coming when God will create a new heaven and a new earth. In Revelation 21, verse 24 says, The nations will walk by the light of the Lord's presence, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, for there will be no night, its gates will never be closed, and they will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. And so, when God's kingdom program is completed, there will be nothing unclean, he says. No one who practices abominations and lying will remain. Only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. It's just the triune God, his kingdom, and his holy people at the end of the age. And so, to answer the question, who are the people of God? Well, they're a purified and redeemed people. Uh, they, they, they are a, an obedient and just people. They are trusting people, and they are people that encompass every tribe and tongue and nation. And these are the kind of people that if we confess Christ, we must be. We must be. We, first, we must be washed through Christ's sacrifice, through faith in him. We, we then, because of that work of redemption, we walk in obedience to his word and do good to all men. We, we trust him and continue to trust in him and lean on him. And we bring that word to the nations that all might hear, that all might believe and be saved. This is, this is what we need to understand about this theme. And so now that we understand the theme, the, this kingdom theme of where is God's kingdom, who are the people of God's kingdom, I think when we come back to 24 to 27, and we, we, just, we, we read in those chapters of a worldwide judgment that culminates and gives way to a worldwide kingdom, I think we'll have a better idea, a little bit more clarity as to what Isaiah is trying to communicate. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your kingdom program that is unfolding according to your sovereign will and sovereign purposes. There is no question in our minds that all things are under your sovereign control we, it doesn't always feel that way to us, and yet we see that even uh, all things, the scripture says, are working together for good to those who are called, those who are called according to your purposes. So help us to live with that spirit of faith and trust and obedience. We thank you for your purifying and redeeming work, which we uh, commemorate and celebrate even now as we come to the Lord's table as your church. We thank you for the privilege of being a part of your kingdom promises, and we long for the day, Lord, when we will enjoy the fullness of those blessings in a new heaven and a new earth. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been encouraged by today's message. For more information or more messages like this, visit us at cascadesbiblechurch.com or subscribe via your favorite podcast app.